surprising them constantly with the way that Jesus' expectations reverse the uh, disciples' expectations. And one thing that we note in this passage in particular is that as Jesus was followed, followed around everywhere by these masses of crowds, it seemed like uh, there were more than a few times that he had to fight off the crowds who were trying to keep the children away from him. And all, all we can suspect why that is, and uh, we can all even sympathize with uh, that idea, keeping the children away from Jesus. Jesus was the master, uh, the rabbi, obviously a very busy man, always followed uh, with a following of crowds. And the people, even the disciples, were eager to hear his teaching on the kingdom. And that was hard to do with noisy kids all around. Also, all pressing to be near him. Jesus' teaching, in a lot of occasions, was difficult enough for the adults to understand, uh, so it didn't seem like the children needed to be around Jesus. It would certainly be above the heads of the children. So it would be a lot nicer if the disciples could have some adult time with Jesus without the kids. In the last section, in particular, chapter 17, Jesus was talking about taxes. It's not exactly the subject that rivets the attention of children. Um, it's certainly not of their interest. And now here in chapter 18, for the disciples, uh, they wanted an answer to an important question, and they wanted to hear that answer carefully. That question, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so the disciples might think, all right, this is a question where it's time for some grown-up talk. And the parents can bring their children and get them blessed and laid hands on later. But as Jesus often did, in his answer to their question, he rejected their very assumption of their question. In choosing a very small child as his object example, Jesus confronted them with their mistaken idea of greatness even their mistaken idea of Christian maturity. He didn't point to the best or the most godly disciple to make his point. He pointed them not even to a disciple, but he pointed them to the smallest one, one among them. He took not a child, Matthew says, but a little child to show the disciples that you don't grow into greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Quite the contrary, in fact. It's actually the littlest ones even the ones who haven't learned to be disciples that Jesus calls great in his kingdom. In effect, he says, these children aren't those who will eventually be in the kingdom after they're discipled, or it's not after you're confirmed in our language that you're brought into the kingdom. It is now because children are part of the kingdom. Children are part of the kingdom before they're confirmed. God's promises to them, not just after they're raised to be Christians, but as they're being raised to be Christians. It's not that a child becomes a disciple by growing up and learning to be a disciple. It's that a disciple, on the contrary, is one who grows down to learn to be a child. You don't grow up to be a disciple, in Jesus' words. You grow down to be a child. The gospel is tuned to be, in other words, received by the hearts, uh, not by the hearts of adults, but by the hearts of children. It's a message that's made for children, in fact. Repentance and faith, those central ideas of our conversion and our salvation. Repentance and faith in Christ is a message that's meant to be received in the heart of a child. So you should take away from the sermon two things today. Number one, for children, little children, you don't only look forward to enjoying the benefits of the kingdom. You have the benefits of the kingdom. You've already begun to enjoy those benefits. God calls little children to inherit the kingdom of God and to be greatest in the kingdom of God. Specifically, you have those benefits of the preaching and the teaching of the gospel, the prayers of God's people. Children, little children, are the ones whose attitudes and dispositions are best suited for the message of the gospel, to have repentance and faith in their hearts. 
And number two, be careful how you grow up to the adults in the room. Most of us are adults. We've grown up. Um, we're no longer children. But it's not because of our mere maturity and our wisdom that we need to receive or understand that we've received the promise of the gospel. It's a childlike heart that for our, us adults is the only opportunity to receive God's promise. If we're to receive God's promise, we must receive it as children. So let's go back to the beginning of the passage in verse 1. At that time, Matthew records that Jesus, uh, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And there's a natural reason the disciples would want to ask that question of Jesus here. There seemed to be, if you look back to, Matt, to chapters 16 and 17, an inner circle developing among disciples, strata of rank um, among Jesus' followers, where some disciples have what seems to be a greater privilege, specifically a greater privilege of Jesus' confidence. In the last chapter, if you look back, Jesus only took Peter, James, and John with him on that mountain where they saw Jesus transfigured, and they told uh, Jesus told them not to share that with anyone, uh, even the other disciples, until after his resurrection. And, of course, there is Peter. Peter, in Matthew 16, makes that landmark confession uh, when Jesus asked, Who do people say that I am? Peter responds, inspired by the Holy Spirit, saying, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you were one of the other disciples, you might think Peter was the one who had the inside track for Disciple of the Month. He was the one in the inner circle he was the one that Jesus commended as the rock of his church. So if you're one of the twelve, it would have been hard for you to ignore the fact that this order of precedence seems to be forming. There's a kind of rank structure developing among Jesus' followers. He had his inner circle, and then there was the outside of the circle, the rest of the disciples. And then outside that, there are the crowds. So if the disciples are anything like, like us, and we know that they are a lot like us, you know that there's always envy growing in your heart when you hear that someone else might be getting ahead of you. Combine that with this strange thing that Jesus says about one of the greatest men the disciples knew, John the Baptist. Jesus says about him in Matthew 11, Among those born of women there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. It was kind of a shocking thing for the disciples to hear about a man named John the Baptist, uh, who identified as the uh, fulfillment of the promise of the Elijah to come and Jesus uh, said that himself about him and who was the first to claim in John 3, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and yet Jesus calls him the least in the kingdom of heaven. So then in their minds of the disciples, there were other events that might have made the disciples wonder about this idea of greatness in the kingdom. Like the Gentile woman that Matthew gives us in Matthew uh, 15, where uh, Jesus commends this woman of Tyre uh, for her great faith a woman who hadn't followed Jesus, a woman who wasn't part of the disciples. So if you're a disciple of Jesus and knowing what you've done to follow him, that you'd left everything to follow your Messiah and recognized him as the king of Israel and knew that you were following him at the cost of your own life, you could be forgiven probably for thinking that you might just have the inside track on the privileges of the kingdom of heaven when the kingdom would actually arrive. But at the same time, it's understandable that you might wonder why you didn't seem to have the status of the inner circle of disciples. Maybe Jesus was reserving a, a special place for a couple of his disciples. One, for instance, to place at his right hand and one on his left, as James and John's mother would ask of Jesus later. But who would those privileged people be? And why them in particular? It probably seemed like Peter had this inside track. If anyone was closest to Jesus, it was him. 
And so the disciples wanted to know now explicitly, Jesus, tell us explicitly, who's your favorite? Who's your favorite and why? That's behind the question. The question naturally arises in this form, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The question is phrased such that there's an implied reference back to chapter 17, because it was there that Jesus, as I said, was teaching about the temple tax, where Jesus actually told Peter, this is the reason why you don't have to pay the temple tax, because you're not a slave of the kingdom such that you owe duty. You're a son of the kingdom. You're exempt from the tax. Jesus says this in Matthew 17, 25, from whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes, from their sons or from strangers? And they learned in that answer that Jesus gave, uh, that Peter gave, that uh, Jesus called them as disciples, sons of the kingdom, privileged people in the kingdom of heaven. And with those privileges, they became called, they were called sons, sons of God himself, co-heirs with Christ. They had a greatness that didn't belong to just anyone, that belonged to the privileged, to those who followed him. In fact, they were privileged with the greatest privilege you can conceive of, being called sons of the Lord of glory. And they knew that. They knew that from Peter's confession. This was the Lord of glory standing before them. And Jesus was calling them sons of his father, his own brothers. But even having that privilege already, it happens with their natures and it happens with our natures. When you receive a privilege, what you have lying in wait the whole time is covetousness. It happens. It happens in your house. It happens in our house. The trivial example is um, dinner time. Privilege, uh, dessert is a privilege in our house. So uh, you get uh, amount, the amount of dessert according to how much dinner you eat. Uh, and there might be one member of our family, the youngest member, uh, who doesn't eat dinner willingly. So she very rarely gets much dessert. Um, but when, for instance, <clears throat> hypothetically, uh, in the family, we would give her a little more dessert than she deserves, what happens to the rest of the children, the rest of the children who've eaten their dinner dutifully and faithfully? Are they pleased? Are they pleased for this little one who's gotten a greater privilege? No, if you ask them, if they could put it in words, they would say, that just ruined the whole meal for me. All this tasty dessert just turned to lead, gray lead in my mouth, because someone else had received a privilege greater than what they deserved. And specifically, someone had received a privilege that's greater than what I received. Your experience can be ruined because you see someone else having something greater. Instead of just receiving and being grateful for the privilege, you look around and see who has the same privilege, or you look around and see who has the greater privilege. And the greater privilege you've been given, the more important it is for a covetous heart to know who else has the same thing. The more privileges you have, the more clear the threat appears of a covetous heart. For the disciples, the more they realized the benefits that, they were, that were theirs in sonship, the more important for them it was to know where they stood next to the other disciples. This is always what covetous hearts do with good gifts. You can call it childish behavior, but that wouldn't be the most accurate way to describe it. It is really adult behavior that child, children are demonstrating when they're coveting. The Wall Street Journal in 2011 had this report. They reviewed a book, <clears throat> and in this book, um, the, uh, there are two terms coined, and they tried to describe uh, the emerging strata between the rich and the super rich. There aren't just rich people anymore. They're rich and super rich. They're millionaires and they're billionaires, and they had names for these two regions uh, of society. They called them Lower Richistan and Upper Richistan, and there, was, there were distinctions emerging between Lower and Upper Richistan, and this is uh, kind of the, the summary quote from the Wall Street Journal's article. 
where they say this, the largest wealth gap today is between the rich and super rich, creating a new form of upper class warfare in which the lower richest stannies or the mere millionaires feel they have gotten the short end of the global wealth stick compared with the billionaire re residents of upper richistan. In our aspirational culture, and this is uh, the interesting thesis here, in our aspirational culture, the folks flying first class aren't thinking, I'm glad I'm not in coach, but my friends get to fly private. That's the object example of the, the distinction between the, the rich and the super rich. And the Wall Street Journal describes it as a, an artifact of our aspirational culture. And if we put that in biblical terms, uh, if the writers of the journal knew their Bible better, they would say in this culture of covetous people. Covetous people is a synonym for an aspirational culture in the way that the journal is using it there. In other words, someone just got a bigger dessert and it ruined the whole meal for the rest of the family. It just happened on a larger scale. It's not a story that really stirs your sympathies for millionaires, uh, millionaire CEOs very much, but that's the point. Why should millionaires start to be feeling sorry for themselves all of a sudden? Why is why this poor me attitude coming from someone who seemingly has everything? What is it that happens to a millionaire CEO who has all the wealth and all the security and all the pleasures he could possibly want such that he can all of a sudden become unsatisfied with everything once he learns that there's a billionaire CEO next door? It'd be nice to be able to chalk that up to our common boogeyman, uh, corporate greed, but that would exempt us too easily. It would be... Uh, something in our nature that we need to recognize. Covetous, covetousness is what the Lord calls it in the 10th commandment. It's the sense that when someone else has the same good things you have, that they're a threat to you. We all know the downside of privileges, that privileges can be lost, and we know the idea of scarcity in our world, that when someone has more, it means that the threat of me having less is ever-present. So once you have those privileges, you begin to guard them jealously, and they begin to have you because you have to work to make sure that you don't lose them and you always have to compare yourself to assure yourself that you are still privileged. There's something in our nature there that takes good gifts and instead of being thankful for them, it looks around and desires other gifts that belong to someone else. That's the essence of covetousness. It's true about millionaire CEOs in the same way it's true here about Jesus' disciples. They've received the gift of sonship in the kingdom of heaven and in their covetous hearts, their response is to argue with each other about who is going to have the greater privilege. And maneuvering for position to gain what they see as greater greatness in the kingdom. And so it's this maneuvering there that's probably behind the questions the disciples asked Jesus. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So if we continue in the passage in verse 2, Jesus teaches them the answer in the way that we could describe as kind of a parable in real life. This is how he's answering them in verse 2. Jesus called a little child to them and set, them in, set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. In answer to the question, this was most certainly not the answer that the disciples were looking for. In fact, it seemed to go against what Jesus was consistently teaching them up, to, up until then, namely that they were already sons of the kingdom because they believed in their Messiah. Because they believed they were those seeds in the parable that fell on good soil and that bore fruit. They were even exempt, as he assured them, from the temple tax because in Christ they were sons of their heavenly Father and the temple was theirs. It was their possession. And now they hear this, that they have to be converted and become like children 
in order to enter the kingdom. And so you can see why this didn't compute. Is Jesus saying they're in danger of not being true followers? And for one thing, <clears throat> to answer the, that objection, it would be helpful to note what Jesus' meaning is in verse 3. The word in verse 3 for converted, at least if you have the New King James, the word translated converted isn't the same word that's used for the technical meaning of repentance elsewhere in the Gospels, um, though it can have that same connotation sometimes. The, the most forceful meaning of the word is to be turned around. This is the word for being turned around. And it would be too rigid an interpretation of that phrase to suggest that Jesus means to tell his disciples that they have to be reconverted, that they have to be born again again, um, in other words. But as Jesus often does, what he uses is stark language, um, language that shocks his disciples to emphasize the importance and uh, the, the necessity of turning around that needed to happen in the hearts of this, his disciples. It's as if he were to say, you're talking about greatness your greatness in the kingdom already, but you're, there's something that you don't yet understand. Being in the kingdom, there is an important aspect of kingdom life and kingdom value that you still don't understand, specifically that need for turning around from their fixation on achieving greatness to the childlike loneliness and dependence that you have to have in coming to Christ at the beginning. It's childlikeness that, that Jesus is teaching his disciples to have. And what kind of childlikeness? That's the question that we'll meditate on today. What kind of childlikeness is Jesus asking his disciples to have? The first thing, as we explain it, is uh, uh, we, we have to be realistic. <clears throat> as any parent knows, knows, kids are sinners. So there isn't a mythical, naive idea of the sinless child that we approach Christ as sinless children. Kids are sinners. Kids, if you don't know it, ask your parents. They'll give you examples. <laughs> So it wouldn't be any good for us to take from Jesus' words um, that an adult should try to act like that mythical sinless child for the sake of the kingdom. Because Jesus, knowing your human nature, is not under the delusions that modern people suffer about childlike innocence. Jesus isn't saying adults should go back to some early state of innocence because we know that never existed. You know better if you know your catechism that every one of you from before the beginning of your life your nature is so corrupt that you are all conceived and born in sin. And there's no way to satisfy God for your sins because even in your attempts to do so, you daily increase your guilt. The Lord's requirement for the kingdom of heaven is not that you have childlike innocence because there's no one who is innocent. Adult and child alike come to the Lord the same way, by repentance and faith. So it's not the innocence of the child that Jesus is telling his disciples they have to be converted to. So what is it then? What is it about the child, specifically that child that Jesus picks up and places in the midst of the disciples, that you should be converted to? I'll suggest three things that describe that childlikeness that Jesus is asking his disciples to emulate. He's calling them first to their lowliness, and he's calling them to their own weakness, and he's calling them to trust. Their lowliness, weakness, and trust. The first uh, he's calling them to their lowliness. He says in uh, verse 4, whoever humbles himself, or you could say as a synonym, whoever becomes lowly as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So this is the first and most important heading, I think. It's what specifically Jesus says in explicit terms to the disciples. And again, it's not to call them to some elusive idea of childlike humility that you have to achieve, but the lowliness of a child who depends on their parents for all they need. It isn't a virtue in the child that Jesus is asking his disciples to emulate, but just 
to know the child depends on his or her parent for all that he needs. It's a bit different than that classical definition of humility, which we think of as a self-abasement or just a low estimate of your own worth. Jesus isn't commanding his disciples to that kind of humility here, but he's showing them how lowly they are and how they must be in order to be a part of the kingdom of God. The one who becomes a child understands and accepts their lowliness before God. The child doesn't maneuver for a greater position before her parent because she already knows and she's already secure in her parents' love. Take that image of Jesus. What did he do? He picked up that child and he put him in the midst of the disciples. He maneuvered the child himself. This was a parable in real life, I said, and I think it is. If you reflect on that comparison of the disciples, they're all maneuvering against one another for the best position in the kingdom, demanding to know who's the greatest, that they would know how to make themselves great as well. It's this maneuvering of the disciples that's compared with that child. The child wasn't maneuvering. That child was maneuvered. He was picked up and he was placed right in the middle of that crowd of the disciples, right in the middle of the kingdom, as it were, and right in front of his Savior. So reflect for a moment on the beauty of that image of not maneuvering, but God maneuvering you, placing you as a child in the midst of the kingdom. You can wonder what's going on in the child's mind. We don't know, but he was thinking maybe that grown-ups were strange sorts of people, that he deserved this moment of attention while Jesus was teaching. And we just see that child silently and compliantly being moved from one place outside the group right to its center in front of Jesus, wondering what on earth is going on, but all the while just accepting it. It's a great contrast against the, that backdrop of the disciples who are ever struggling to achieve the greatness that they think they need. Like the one who finds himself a millionaire and all of a sudden lives in this rarefied air and comes to notice the billionaire next door and then is no longer satisfied to be a millionaire. The child, however, doesn't see any threat to his position as he looks around the group of those disciples uh, everyone bigger than him, everyone taller. The child knows that he already has an exalted position in his family. The child wakes up in the morning in the warm house of his parents and he asks for breakfast, knowing before he even asks that his parents have already planned to provide him for it, with it. In fact, that child enjoys everything in his life as not something he has to work or struggle for, but as something that he receives as a gift everything that the child receives. He receives as a gift and never thinks for a moment about repaying his parents for their kindness. It's one of those frustrations of parenthood that you often don't get gratitude from your children. What's one of the reasons for that? They just expect it. They know it's coming from you. They take it for granted that parents, parents just do these things for their children. It's in the very nature of parents that they do these things for their children. And as any parent knows, that kind of humility isn't a virtue in your children. The humility of that child isn't the child's willing choice to abase himself before you, his parent, but the choice of that child to depend on his parent's good nature, to know his parent's good nature, and that parent will provide him with whatever he needs. In the same way, your lowliness is not the same as the humility that abases you or even makes you to consider that you're unworthy for what you receive which are both true things. You are unworthy and you should abase yourself, but the thrust of Jesus' words about the child who humbles himself is the lowliness that Jesus is talking about that means it's, not, it's the outworking of the station you have in your family. That at the same time you might be the smallest and lowliest member of your family, 
but all the while every good gift of the household all the same belongs to you. The great ones in the child's household, however, his mother and father, well, what do they do? They use their greatness to live and to serve, to provide for everything that the child needs. And they know what the child needs before the child asks. And they give those things to him joyfully. The lowliness that, is, that a disciple needs to understand is that the kingdom of heaven is populated exclusively with children of this kind. That's the stark warning that's behind Jesus' words, that the kingdom of heaven is populated only with children of this kind who receive because they know that they receive from their father who is greater because they know he desires to give. The kingdom of God is a kingdom populated exclusively not with those who through their climbing over one another reach the gates of heaven, but those who as little children are picked up and placed there by their king, by Christ. And that brings me to the second thing. The second thing that describes childlikeness is that the little child is weak. What fundamentally distinguishes a child from an adult is their weakness, their smallness, because it's the strong of the world that needs to see the child's example. It was very important that this small child was there in the crowd around Jesus because what his disciples needed to see was that example of weakness to follow. You've seen that great irony if you've gone through Matthew, the irony of the kingdom of heaven, that its weakness that is the power whereby Jesus advances his kingdom. As Jesus told his disciples twice by this time, the way that the kingdom was going to come to them was from the Messiah being rejected, suffering, being betrayed, and being killed, and the third day rising again. Jesus said this three times by this time in Matthew. This is greatness in the kingdom, that the greatest would serve, the greatest would serve his children, and that power would come through weakness. Jesus chose the weak things of the world to put to shame those who are mighty. So from that perspective, it's just natural that the Lord would call his followers to weakness, not to greatness. There is something that happens to a child as a child grows and matures and becomes stronger. What happens is you start to get oriented around your newfound strength. As you grow, you get stronger. You naturally lean on your strength, and it's less important for you now to trust someone else's strength. You grow up and you get a job and you have money and you feel like you started yourself on the road to greatness. In fact, there sometimes comes a point in your life for all of us when you just violently throw away your trust in everyone else because it feels better to trust in your own strength. You've been disappointed. You've had the experience of disappointment in others' strength before. But you can't achieve greatness by constantly relying on the strength of your parents. You know that. And you don't want to. You've gained degrees, you've gained offices, you've gained reputations, and those things serve you with strength. It's when you mature and you come into your strength that you forget your childlike weakness. And that's what inevitably happens as you grow up. As it turns out, it's the very thing that Jesus warns his grown-up disciples about. Because the third thing that describes childlikeness is trust. The little child, being weak and being without strength of his own, is given to trust. As before, it's hard to describe this as a virtue, per se. This kind of trust isn't just a superior quality of your character. It's a necessary consequence of your lowliness and your weakness. If you're lowly and you're weak, you have no choice but to trust in someone else. So it's intimately tied together with that childlike humility and childlike weakness. Jesus spoke the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18 uh, because he wanted to teach them about those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So we gave this example of the two men who went to the temple to pray, the Pharisee, 
who trusted in those great things that he did, his fasting, his tithing, and his good deeds, and the tax collector, the tax collector who just trusted in God's mercy because he knew he was a weak and evil sinner. The tax collector trusted, not out of a virtue in himself, himself, but because of his knowledge of his weakness and his lowliness, his unworthiness before God. And so Jesus said it was the tax collector who was the one and went, that went back to his house justified. Jesus commended the man whose prayer reflected not the man's virtue, but the man's trust. From the catechism, you have the answer to the question, what is an acceptable prayer to God? And we know it's the one in which we thoroughly know our need and misery, so as to humble ourselves in the presence of his divine majesty, that we are firmly assured, notwithstanding our unworthiness, that he will, for the sake of Christ our Lord, certainly hear our prayer, as he has promised us in his word. That trust is an outworking of that knowledge, that knowledge that we are unworthy, that knowledge that we must be humble. So do you see how humility and weakness are both connected to trust in this question? That's what Jesus wants his disciples to understand. The very concept of prayer is that you, as a sinner, must humble yourself, must trust in another for the good things that you need, the knowledge that you're weak, an unworthy sinner coming before the Lord's divine majesty. And at the same time, you can still know for sure that he hears you for the sake of Christ because that's what he's promised you. The prayer that's acceptable before God is the prayer that comes from a little child to his heavenly father where the child asks simply for the things he needs, the things he needs for soul and body, knowing that you are before the divine majesty of God, that you are the weakness, weakest and most undeserving kind of creature, but at the same time not even hesitating to claim the love of God for yourself if you know him as your father, just like a child knows that they'll get good gifts because it's the nature of parents to give them. Jesus commends the humility, the weakness, and the trust of that child because that's is who he's chosen to populate his kingdom because that was who he he was as the son of uh, the son of god the god man and the sons of his kingdom bear his likeness the son of god became a small child even though to him belonged all the resources of the godhead that he became lowly and weak so that he would identify himself with those little children that he was calling to himself he says this in verse 5 whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me and that's more, of, more than a parable. It, that's actually how Jesus came to know us. That's actually how Jesus came to identify with us, to be one of us, because he became a child. So one that receives a child in his name receives him. The Lord asks his disciples not just to turn around and become like children to inherit the kingdom by accepting their weakness and unworthiness as a gift of grace, but also <clears throat> he asks us to receive and to welcome children. He says further, not only should you become children, but you ought to welcome children. Because of all people, Jesus Christ himself identifies most with the child. Such that when we welcome a child in his name, we're welcoming him. And that's, as I said, not just sentimentalism. <clears throat> we sometimes think of it that way. We have in the back of our minds uh, the, the way the song goes, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. But Jesus is saying this because your faith is most genuine and robust when it's childlike. It is the child that's closest to the kingdom of God, and so it's the child that's closest to the heart of Christ. So when we in our churches, we receive and welcome children, we're receiving sons of the kingdom. That our children, that's why we call them covenant children, 
don't begin their lives outside of the kingdom until they make their profession of faith. They begin their lives as children of the covenant, and we receive and welcome them as such because of this command of Christ in verse 5. Before they make their profession of faith, which is only the validation of the reality that's already present in the child of the kingdom. Not that the little child has faith by virtue of being in the covenant, of course, but because that lowly, weak, and trusting child is being lowly, weak, and trusting as they enjoy the nurture of the covenant of the family of God. And so we obey Christ's command to receive and welcome the child because we consider them, even in their weakness and their childlikeness, as members of God's people from their very birth. So if you have kids, it may be a few or maybe several years before they stand for confirmation and into the full rites of the communion of the church. But you can still all the while assure them that they're no less members of Christ now, members of Christ today. And you can have the confidence in the promises that you hear in the gospel that they belong to them. That in believing those promises, they are members of Christ by faith. To put it more strenuously, Jesus says those promises that are received by faith are especially for them, for those children. As they grow in their faith and their knowledge, Jesus cautions them, as well as you, that as you grow, to keep growing as a child, not gaining the vices of adults who tend to outgrow their childlike weakness and their childlike trust, because we adults sometimes lapse into thinking our knowledge and our gifts are the qualifications for the kingdom. As much as we know better, we lapse into that way of thinking our knowledge and our gifts are the qualifications for the kingdom, and we lean on our own understanding, puffed up with the knowledge, with knowledge rather than simple trust in Christ. Jesus is saying we should focus less on growing up than growing down. He's footstomping that great tradition that started way back with Abraham, where the children were also given the sign of the covenant with circumcision. When the child was welcomed into the family, and eight days later, he was welcomed into the covenant, into God's covenant people, Israel. And that tradition continues now as Jesus calls the church still to welcome her children, placing on them that sign of the covenant of baptism on each child, male and female, as the church honors her Lord by receiving and welcoming children into the kingdom or obeying Jesus' command to welcome them. And as the church welcomes her children, our grown-up members get to be reminded of their example. We're not just nurturing children in the covenant, they're nurturing us. They're giving us the example of what we were and what Christ became because you came to Christ in the very same way, with no claim or pretensions to any sort of greatness, with no prior qualifications that would admit you to the family, but as a weak sinner, only claiming the rights as sons, and the kingdom of heaven is given only to such as these. Let's pray. Father, we are your children, and we come to you in that knowledge today it's still a wonder to us that it was your good pleasure to call a people like us, your sons. We each know in our hearts what makes us utterly unworthy for any claim in the kingdom of heaven. And I pray that the words of Jesus today will remind us and call us back from any seasoned Christian experience that we have, that we would use to deceive ourselves, that we would presume to come to you as people with qualifications. So remove us, remove from us the pretensions of our qualifications, that we would be qualified only because of the work of grace that Christ made on our behalf. Make us true children, knowing our lowliness and glorying in it because it makes your grace that much more gracious. Work that in us by the Holy Spirit and in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our final hymn, number 249.